Welcome to Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is the podcast starring me, Kevin Hillier, and him, Brian Mannix. Hello, Kevin, and hello to you listening at home or wherever you're listening. You might be not at home. You might be at the Oriental Plum, which is a great little brothel in Thomastown. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. I know that I know that the uh, Takitan and the girls at the Oriental Plum are big fans of the podcast, Kev. Is that and, right? Um, you going in there for a, uh, you know, for a service of some description, mm. chances are you might hear the dulcet tones of uh, Kevin and myself uh, interviewing people and to, well, uh, people are getting serviced in room three at the Oriental Plum. Lovely. Now, our guests mm. today on the program are the delightful Wendy Matthews. We're going uh, to the farm to visit Wendy. She's uh, she's a bit of a hippie, isn't she? These days, lives uh, lives on a, a farm, a few acres uh, in Coffs Harbour, and uh, has been doing that for a number of years now. And is sort of a, a jack of all trades, but uh, one of one of the great singers. Uh, she's just a terrific singer. She is a terrific singer, and she's she's a really lovely woman. Um, yes, and uh, and how's the view from her house? It's wonderful. It's out Very in the nice. middle of middle of the bush, and. Um, yeah, it looks terrific. So, well done, Wendy Matthews. And she's doing shows uh, all around the place with uh, Grace Knight. They do a, uh, a Songs of Paul Simon show, a Graceland show, and then Wendy's doing her own gigs as well as that. So uh, we will put all those details up on uh, on the Life of Brian uh, social media platform so you can see Wendy live. And our other guest, uh, Mark Lane from uh, Murcott's, uh, is, uh, he's got friends in all different places around the world, and one of his good mates is Joe Walsh. Uh, we don't have Joe, but we have uh, Joe's drummer, Joe Vitale, who uh, has drummed with, amongst other things, not only Joe, but he also drummed with uh, a little mob called The Eagles, um, a little trio you may have heard of called Crosby, Stills and Nash, um, and he was, he was a member of Barnstorm, which of course is the uh, the, the Joe Walsh band that uh, will be out and about when Joe finishes his commitments with the Eagles, so yeah. Is, um, is this uh, Joe Vitolo guy, like, is he partied with uh, Joe Walsh? Has he partied? Oh, you'll hear about you'll hear about the partying with him and uh, and uh, back in Joe's drinking days. And he wrote wrote songs and he wrote Pretty Maids in a Row, which is on uh, the Eagles Hotel California album. Uh, you'll hear about that. And he also, of course, wrote one of uh, Joe's signature tunes, Rocky Mountain Way, which we'll talk so he'd about. Be, he'd be pretty cashed up. Well, you'd think he'd have a, a dollar or two in the bank. Well, I, I think if I could have one song on any album. You'd be you'd be thinking Hotel California would be a good one to have it on oh, that or Thriller. Yeah. Well, um, well, it was the B side of the Hotel California single. Oh, even better. <laughs> and it was uh, as we'll, we'll hear in the uh, in the interview that Mark and I did with Joe. Um, uh, Bob Dylan rates it as one of his all time favourite songs. Pretty mates. So uh, wow, high praise indeed. So uh, he's coming up later on. Cool. So busy, busy, busy. But, of course, I've got to remind you, uh, Mark, of course, uh, is with us thanks to our very good friends, and so is Brian with us, thanks to our very good friends at Murcott's Driving Excellence. Uh, yes, that number you need to ring if you want to get uh, get your uh, driving into shape a bit. I suggest they call 1-300-555-576, Kev. Or jump on the website, murcotts.edu.au. Uh, if it weren't for them, Brian wouldn't be with us because they taught him how to drive back in 1985 and it's held him in good stead since. 
It has indeed. Even when I'm walking, I still <laughs> I, I still know how to take the corners properly. Defensive. Uh, well, I, I, look, I, I use what I learned in the Grand Prix driving for walking. And, you know, I sort of come to a corner, I'm picking the racing lines with my feet. It's fantastic. Very it's, good. Hasn't it's, useful in, it's useful for almost anything you're doing. But the, it can, um, can be quite dangerous if you blow a thong out there on one of those hot Queensland streets. Oh, Gotta yes, be careful. can can get nasty, but that's why you go to Murcott, so you know how to handle it when your thong blows out. Exactly right. All right. (laughs) Uh, Let's get to Wendy Matthews. Let's go to the farm and have a chat. All right. I'm at home. I'm up in the mountains, but I'm on the coast as well. Oh, that's fantastic. So you've been there for a while now, haven't you? You moved up there when, in the 90s? Or not? No, I bought uh, 10 acres in 2000 and I built in about uh, 2002. So I've been up here like 23 years or some damn thing. Uh, Good quality of life. Yes, it is. And and that's the reason you wrote your album was called Beautiful View, I believe. Quite right. Yeah, that was the first year I was up here. Yeah, okay, because I I read that you'd, you'd moved up there and then the next album comes out, Beautiful View, and I thought, <laughs> she must have a really good view up there in Coles Harbour um, So, yeah, and after seeing that, I can understand why you uh, call your album Beautiful View. So is it a yes. – you said 10 acres, did you? Is that what it is? Yeah, it is. Okay, so what what's on it? A bunch of trees. It's rainforest and I have only cleared a third of it. It's just it's just me up here and has been ever since I bought it. So it's hell to maintain, but I've learned a little bit about everything from fixing my car to uh, driving a tractor to try and cut the damn grass. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I'm not a responsible parent. I'm not around long enough to have animals or any stock. Um, although I, I did have a deer for about eight years, but he was a free range. Okay. So uh-huh. no, no singing goat? No singing goats. Thank God. They smell. <laughs> <laughs> well, weren't, weren't, you, weren't, weren't you famously a singing goat on Sesame Street? <laughs> oh, shit. Um, my mother, when I was four, had some friends. She was a young parent of the 60s. She had some friends in the Canadian film board. And uh, in New York, they were making this... <laughs> This new program called Sesame Street. And I was brought into a studio to sing the songs for the letters. And that's all I remember. Something about a goat going over the hill for the letter O. Well, wow, that's been the highlight of your career, I don't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> it was no career move. <laughs> so yeah. what, are, what, what are you up to? What are, I, know, I know you've been doing that, uh, that tour with Grace and stuff. Uh, what, uh, what's, yeah. what's, the, what's the plans for the rest of the year? It's actually, I'm so grateful. I'm really busy with my own gigs, uh, busier than I've been for years. I'm doing a lot of writing with some folks, although that's sort of taken a bit of a backseat. I've got my own little label that I put things out on, but haven't for some years. So working on that slowly. And between my own shows and the uh, Graceland shows with Grace, um, yeah, it's keeping me pretty busy. Yeah, good. Now, you mentioned you're writing with, uh, it's, it's members of your band and stuff that you're writing most of the stuff with? Yes, yeah. And and, and I believe, I've I, I done my extensive research, I believe you're also, you're, you're working on a, a, an album of duets. 
Oh, um, yeah, I said that out loud somewhere, didn't I? Mm. Uh, yes. <laughs> I would, um... The secret's <laughs> well, that's out. Amazing. That's amazing that you've heard that. It's just an idea, um, and I've always liked the idea of doing a, a bit of a duets album with, um, with boys that I like. Well, it leaves me out, but anyway. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I look, I saw that you did a duet with Rod Stewart. Yeah, yeah, that was um, wow. some years ago. We met years and years ago in, in Los Angeles when I lived there and was uh, doing a lot of backing vocals. He contacted me when he was doing, he had a series of albums called American Songbook. Yeah. Mm. And I think it was, I don't know, number three or something. He contacted me and said, what would you think? And I kind of went, oh, duh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, we, I phoned my parts in from Sydney and he was in Los Angeles. Wow. But you also yeah. did backing vocals for sure as well. Yes, Sherilyn and I um, worked together years ago. I was a backing singer uh, for a long time in Los Angeles, so I got to work with some interesting folks. Um, and I was also a... A ghost vocalist, which was, you know, I don't know if some if a Playboy bunny wants to make a record, um, I would go in, work with the producer in the band, and record their vocals, record all the songs, and then somebody and share. I did a Heart of Stone album yep. that Peter Asher produced. Um, I went in and did the fun stuff. Got to work with her band for a week. And uh, we recorded the whole album. And then they come in and they put their headphones on and they sing along with my vocal. And I'm sort of mixed down and they're mixed up. Voila. Wow. wow. There you yeah. go. Yeah, exactly. So when you're, uh, you know, doing all this session stuff in L.A. when you're a very young girl, did you play in any stuff that we, we you know, that you remember fondly or was there, was it? What was it? Oh, I remember it all fondly. It was um, it was all really fun and interesting, even if it wasn't my kind of music. Um, I got to work with some great players. You know, there was Waddy Wattel on Cher's album and all wow. sorts of um, iconic folks. And I get, to me, I got to do the fun stuff, which was hang out with them for a couple of weeks and and record all the stuff. I'd never had a burning desire at that stage to be up the front or to be a, a lead vocalist, so to speak. So I was just taking, you know, the work as it came and going with wherever it took me. And part of that kind of, how that kind of all meshed together was that what you sing on Glenn's, Glenn Shurick's solo album? <laughs> Yeah, I, I lived in a house full of Australians um, in Laurel Canyon. We just all shared this kind of ramshackle place in the hills. And I'd never seen them or heard of them, but they brought me along to the Greek theatre to a band called the Little River Band. I had this decrepit white Volkswagen that I used to have to push start. And about 10 minutes after the gig finished, their lead singer was pushing my car to help me push start it and he jumped in as we careered down the, the hill um he jumped in the passenger seat and said right where are we going we've been friends ever since he asked me to come down here and do it and do a tour with him as a backing vocalist and i decided i was much happier and healthier out of los angeles and i've been here ever since well, well before that happened 
happened, just from what I read, at 15 or 16, you just said, stuff this, I'm going to be a musician. And you just went to America and just started busking all around America and even into Mexico. Yeah, exactly. I went hitchhiking, busking with a couple of school friends from high school. And uh, I don't know how my parents handled that, but um, I think I would have, you know, chained me down to the house. But they let me go. I was, um, I told them I was leaving for a weekend. And my mother at 92 says, are you, when are you coming home? (laughs) Um, Still to this day in my 60s. So, yeah, I just went busking. I thought I had all the time in the world as you do in your youth. And it was an adventure, and I just kept going. As long as there were streets to sing on, I, I kept going. Wow. And you make, did you make it enough money doing that? You know, does it pay for everything and all You that? know, at the time, we ate really well. It was day-to-day, but it, we yeah. actually did pretty well. Yeah, cool. That's, I reckon that's, got so, that's such a gutsy move. And, um, oh, and the fact look, that it turned into session work in, in L.A., wow, it's pretty amazing story. Yeah. I don't know if it was gutsy. I wouldn't have the guts to do that now. I think it was just stupidity of use, um, you know, and, and naivete. I just thought, yeah, whatever. I'll just go with with wherever this takes me. But I wouldn't have the guts to do it now. Your parents must have been freaking out for 15 or 16-year-old in Los Angeles for a start, and no matter what the era you'd be going, my God. And then you're in a, in your, a house in Laurel County with a bunch of Australians. My God. I know, exactly, dangerous. Charles Manson's living next door. (laughs) Jesus. Well, you know, it was the era. It it actually was those days, the Hillside Strangler, I remember thinking, oh, i got to shut my windows. But, um, yeah, that's what I mean. I don't know how my parents coped with that, but they did. They were probably glad to get rid of me at the time, but um, (laughs) I don't know that they thought that I'd be gone for as long as I have been. So what songs were you enough. singing when you were busking? What sort of stuff were you doing? Were you doing Joni Mitchell? Because she was your idol, wasn't she? Well, her po- her lyrics were. Yeah. Um, her, you know, to listen to a whole album of early Joni kind of gave me a bit of a headache. Um, to be honest, I used to love her lower register in her later years. Um, but, yes, I loved her poetry, but at the time it was just like, but you know, Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt and and stuff that was going on in, in the uh, middle 70s. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So you land here, Shorik gets you out here and sort of settle and decide that this is where, when, when did that moment, uh, was there a moment when you went, yeah, this is where I want to be, I don't want to go back to LA, I don't want to go back to Canada? Oh, man, I, you know, I left Canada at 15 and haven't been back to live. I've been traveling on my Australian passport for over 30 years. And last time I went to Canada, I needed a visa to get in. (laughs) 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 Um, But, um, yeah, I just, uh, what? I was just going with it. Again, it was the naivete of youth, you know. I was just going with what whatever was going on. Glenn and his wife lived in this extraordinary sort of five-level house. I'd never been in anything like that. I thought, this is pretty cool. I was the guest who wouldn't leave. I think I lived <laughs> with them for six six months or something. Yeah. Wow. And I was wondering why they kept looking at their watches, going, geez, are you <laughs> are you finished yet? But um, I was introduced, I really had the, the great fortune of being introduced 
just to Glenn's, Glenn Sharp's friends who were all musicians. And I kind of fell in with a bunch of folks that were doing jingles and backing vocals. And I kind of fell right into it. Wow, I've seen, you, I've seen you mention that some of the jingles you did in the eighties you don't remember as fondly as some of the other stuff you did. <laughs> well, what do you think? Singing for <laughs> toilet paper as much, you know, isn't as fabulous as as singing with you know on the road with people, or singing or doing the singing goat even even exactly you know. <laughs> exactly no comparison. <laughs> Wendy Matthews for sorbent. That's right. Um, quite right. <laughs> was, was Absent Friends the first song where you sort of did the lead? Uh, no, actually, I was in the Rock Melons before that, oh, okay. and um, they did a few albums where you know I was I was forced to sing <laughs> a lead vocal or two, which was great fun. But yeah, I, it was a gradual thing for me. You did Jump, didn't you? You did the vocals on Jump. Yeah. Yeah. Geez, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. In the models, what were you? I mean, you weren't weren't listed as the vocalist, but you certainly did vocals in the model stuff. I spent six years with those guys, traveling the world and doing a couple of albums. That was um, that was extremely pivotal for me. I uh, I just thought they were extraordinary band, like nothing else I'd heard. Um, they wore more makeup than I did at the time, <laughs> uh, and they were great cricket players and really funny guys. And uh, I, in fact, I ended up being Sean Kelly's partner for about twelve years, which is, I'm sure, how I ended up in Absent Friends. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I worked with Sean a lot. He's a he's a great guy, but but I like the fact that he he just looks at the world a little bit differently. And yes. Often it's often it's a really great view that he has. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, he's, yeah uh, he's a lovely man, just a beautiful soul. He's got a, a very beautiful heart and he's I love his quirky perception of the world. Yeah, me too. I think he's terrific. Yeah. Um, so how long did Absent Friends go for? Just a couple of years? A few years. We were put together just to, um, what, for a few gigs live just to improvise. Um, there was a bunch of us from different bands until Gary Beers joined from In Excess and uh, he wanted it to go on and we did a, a three-month tour through Europe in excess and that was that really um tested all of us and uh we kind of we didn't last long after that oh, okay. as a band but it was a fantastic experience and um yeah I, I still remember all of us still remember try you know trials and tribulations and fantastic things we did through Europe. That song, yeah. I Don't Want to Be With Anybody But You, that is just beautiful. Your vocal performance on that is exquisite. Oh, nice. Thank you so much. Mm. Yeah, well, um, that was a long time ago. Very clear, high voice. But to be uh, uh, that was a song that from an East Memphis Blues album that I'd had for years and years, and Sean said, um, you know, this album's only supposed to take a week to record and you better bring some lead vocals to it. So... I thought, oh shit, what am I going to bring to it here? So I uh, I brought that song to it, and um, we recorded it in a day with some fantastic players. And uh, yeah, it was actually quite shocking when it was chosen to be a single, and it actually did quite well. It's a bit scary for me. <laughs> wow, because the other song that that everyone talks about when they talk about you is the day you went away. Now that you recorded in America with 
T-Bone Burnett? No, I recorded it here. He came here. Oh, okay. Um, and he also brought out um, Booker T from Booker T and the MGs, who oh, wow. basically sat down at the piano and we tried to work that song out by slowing it right down. And uh, T-Bone had the wherewithal just to press record at the time when we were sort of flubbing through it and, and uh, learning it really slowly. And that was the piano recording of it to this day. It was just, um, it was Booker trying to work it out at a very slow pace. And when he finished it, I looked at him and said, how'd you do that? And he said, I've got no idea. <laughs> um, and that was, that was the piano track, you know, from beginning to end. Oh, see, I, I thought it must have been recorded in America because he was on it because I, I don't remember him ever coming out here. Well, why would you? I mean, he it's not like hes he loves press or anything. No, no. <laughs> uh, he, he's a very quiet and private dude. So, And I'd known him since I was 17. So when that album, you know, the, the idea of doing that record came about, I called, he was the first person I called and said, look, I'm, I'm a little nervous to do this, but I'd love to do it with you. Would you be interested? And he said, yeah, I've never been to Australia. Sure, I'll come down. So he did, and he played a lot of golf and uh, recorded, and that was about it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he yeah. slipped in and he slipped out. Absolutely, and uh, and left uh, just a bloody beautiful piece of music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thankfully for me, yes, yeah. he did. Good grief.
you've done a bit of um, a fair bit of TV, and I see that you. Act, I was watching this movie the other day. I just I only seen the beginning of it. The the Flynn movie. You actually um, playing oh a nightclub singer in that. And I yeah. only seen, I've only seen the first ten minutes. It looks pretty good, actually. Um, I think Guy Pearce is a perfect person to play Errol Flynn. But, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, so how many lines and stuff do you have in that? Is it is it much of a part? Oh no, it's not at all. I've, I'm not an actor. Um, I never sort of aspired to be. Somebody asked me to play the, you know, the nightclub singer in that, and I thought, yeah, cool. That's that'd be an experience. <laughs> so I did, um, and that was great fun. I thought um, Guy was really good in that. Yeah, and yeah. what about what about um, it takes two? Now that'd be a bit of a challenge. <laughs> you got John Mangos, Richard Champion, and I forget who the other one was. Russell Gilbert. Russell Gilbert. <laughs> Russell Gilbert. But how do you go getting these? <laughs> like Richard Champion can sing. He sounds like Barnsey. But yeah. Russell Gilbert, I can't imagine him singing or John Mangos. That was so how- hilarious. Um, yeah, that was a fun bit of froth, but I, I, you know, by by the third bloke they gave me being mangoes, I thought, come on, you guys, what the, what the? Um, but Russell was Russell was hilarious. He he called me up from the studio one day and said, look, we're recording this thing for next week's show, and like by the time. I finished the song. The band's only in the second verse. I'm I like, <laughs> and I said, well, can you count to four, Russell? Because he was just singing. He was hot, like plastering through the whole song without any stops, without any concept of a verse and a chorus. And he'd finished, the so- finished singing the song and the band was just approaching the first chorus. So, uh, yeah, so he was a challenge, but um, he could carry a tune. He just couldn't count to four. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and Russell was naturally caffeinated beyond most people's wildest expectations. Beyond, like beyond. I, you know, I, often I thought of slipping a Valium into his coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yes, would have been a very appropriate thing to do. Yeah. Well, just out of interest, what songs did you give Russell Gilbert to sing? Oh, and I cannot Mangos. remember. I've tried to put it out of my mind. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Um, I honestly can't remember. That was that was a few years back. And to be honest, the actors who were, you know, who were in our charge, they they chose their songs. They had to be approved, but they chose right. their songs. Yeah. Oh, Richard Champion would have gone for a chisel song, no doubt. Oh, he went for Eye of the Tiger. He wanted to uh. jump around like sliced alone in Rocky. Oh gosh! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, oh, that fantastic. was that was a bit of fun, but um, yeah, you couldn't take it very seriously. <laughs> now you've done a, you, you did an album of covers, didn't you? At one stage, uh, did I? Yeah, I think I did. Um, I did an album called She, which was a collection of songs written and sung by women that I admired. Over my uh, over the years, yeah, um, and they they happen to be covers, so yeah. But to me, the concept of that album was more, you know, sung sung and written by women that I admired. Yeah, I just wondered: is the the Graceland thing ever likely to go to the, a recorded version of that? I don't know. We um, 
We've got a fantastic sound man who does some desk desk tapes, but they're not, you know, they're not releasable. Um, but no, we've never discussed recording the show. Maybe we will one day. Yeah. Well, you've got a desk tape one. I saw you did one of the for the yeah for the uh, the road crew. Right. Um, uh, uh, That's right for for Ark. Yeah, yeah. That was um, that was great fun. In fact. It's been out for a couple of years and I only was able to listen to myself a couple of months ago. And it's a really great album. Uh, it's Enough time has passed and my voice is, has changed enough that I can say it's a really great album. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. what Because uh, yeah. with, with our voices, with male voices and with Brian's voice, we, we, get, we get deeper and you lose the top part. What happens with the what, – what's happened to your voice over the years? Same thing. I yeah. was also a smoker for about 40 years. Um, so it it definitely, it drops in volume. But I must say, I still do all my songs in the original keys. I'm, wow. You know, I've only recently realised that a whole lot of people drop it down a tone or a half a tone. So I'm going to take a page out of their book any day now and just bring it down a tiny bit. Yeah, sometimes people that don't bring it down, I've heard Paul McCartney murder a couple of his songs because it's just a little bit too high for him now. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think he's like 108 or something, isn't he? He's <laughs> yeah. still got an extraordinary <laughs> voice, but um, which is incredible. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah it, it doesn't hurt to bring it down a couple of tones or a tone because the audience doesn't go, hang on, she's playing this in F and it's supposed to be in G. That that <laughs> never happens. So, you know, I have Exactly. No, I, yeah, I sing in the original keys too, but sometimes I think, oh, I wouldn't mind it down a tone. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. but while you can, I think you should. But, yeah. yeah. Is, yeah. is singing – While you can, you should. Is singing yeah. still a joy for you, Wendy? Yes, it is. Um, it's that old cliche, you know, the minute I start singing, nothing else matters, even a, a potentially bad day or or a, a decision that I really don't want to do the gig that night or whatever. So, yeah, it takes over, luckily. It's a few other aspects of touring I'm not so crash hot on anymore. Mm. Um, you know, plane flight and touring and Waking. hotels and all that crap. Um, I don't enjoy all that much. The older I get, the more I enjoy being at home and doing the stuff I do around here, even if it is just fixing the car or <laughs> or whatever. You, um, well, the car to, so yeah, you but, get, but the music I still do. Yeah. If you if you can't get the car to work, you can always get Glenn Shorrock to give you a push. So oh that yeah, works. that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he can push me down the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> so is it is it uh, you, your Navajo blankets, and your Bunnings trolley? Is that what? Uh... <laughs> Shit. And my dog, of course. Um, yeah, there, there's a little more than that involved, but I must say, because it's just me up here, I do rely on my trolley. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, Wendy, was, Wendy Matthews, trolley lady, come on. I was, I was asked I was asked about, you know, what, what one of my favourite things in life is and I just looked across the yard and thought, man, I rely on that thing a lot. And what are you supposed to say? My dog or my vibrator, a girl's best friend. No, <laughs> my trolley. <laughs> well, I thought, you know, it would have been your 25,000 ARIA awards and, uh, you know, your gold <laughs> records and your uh, your best single of the year and all that sort of stuff, your bloody Bunnings no, trolley. No, 
No, those don't mean a whole lot at the end of the day. My arias uh, hold up the cactus shelf in the garden <laughs> because they're so weather resistant. I think you just came up with two songs there. You've got me and my trolley and a girl's best friend. These are great lyrics. <laughs> Incidentally, has Bunnings, oh, has Bunnings uh, been on to you about uh, returning that trolley anytime soon? No, hell no. I need another one. You know, I've been spotted <laughs> in my local Bunnings about four times a day. They, you know, I know this guy called Gordon in there. Hi, Gordon. Gordon. And uh, about about my third visit in the same day, he says, are you still here? And I say, no, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> so they know me quite well at Bunnings and I'm due for a new trolley. <laughs> a bigger and better Fair one. Enough. Uh, Fair enough. Goodness Fair me. enough. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much for spending a bit of time and having a chat to us. It's been lovely to catch up with you. Yeah, it's been really and funny. You thank you, guys. <laughs> and, uh, and we'd love seeing you out in the road on your own and singing with Grace and doing all those things. It's great. Lovely. Yeah. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing what's the next adventure in your life. Yes, onwards and upwards. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Wendy. <laughs> thanks, Wendy. <laughs> See you guys. I can't.
There's Wendy singing beautifully, just beautifully, uh, as she always does on uh, the Absent Friends song. And uh, we'll put all those dates uh, for her and Grace, the shows they've got coming up and the ones that Wendy's doing on her own up on our social media platforms. Oh, right, our social media platforms. Yes, you you didn't know you had a social media platform, but you do. Well, there I go, fantastic. We're we're building one at the back of the penthouse. You know that room you never go to in the back of the penthouse? Yeah, you know that one that you just you don't open yeah, the door because you just don't, no. Yeah. That's that's where the social media platforms. There's a there's a whole bunch of uh, squirrels and um, and, and gerbils on on spinning wheels, just oh. moving the social media platforms around in that in that room at the back of the penthouse. Right, that's why I don't go in there because of the gerbils. I guess it. we never yes. talk about okay. it. Okay, <laughs> you go in there and you just you disappear. It's all over Red Rover. You know those people okay. who knocked on your door three weeks ago and you haven't seen since. Yeah, that's them there in the back room. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, they're right. working on that. Well, on that. At least the social media platforms are in good shape. Yep. Uh, now uh, we've our next guest is the one that we talked about at the start of the show. The man has been the drummer with uh, with the Eagles, uh, with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Wrote a couple of massive big hits. You're going to hear about those in this chat. Uh, and Mark Lane uh, from Mercots and I uh, caught up with him very recently. His name is Joe Vitali, and he's a terrific bloke. And this is this is part one of our chat. So cool. You just go and see what's going on in that back room, will you, Brian? Okay, I'll see what the ferrets are up to. Joe, I want to go all the way back. So was the Beatles your trigger, your turn on, your... Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. February 9th, 1964. They they changed my life. They changed the world, you know. And uh, everybody around my age that saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan... um, they say the same thing. It's it's like a common thread. You know, we saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and and uh, uh, I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, my father was right behind me watching. He goes, no, you're not. <laughs> and I said, yes, I am. <laughs> so, you know, people that are my age that are musicians, that kind of uh, set them in place, you know. So when you saw the Beatles, and given where your musical journey's taken you, did you see John, Paul, George, or Ringo? You know, I saw the all of them, but I was paying attention to Ringo because he was such a great drummer and he had such a unique style. And also, and I, I've spoken to Ringo about this. I asked Ringo, I said, so do you know that you're the first drummer to play, and drummers call it matched grip? Uh, I said, where did you learn that? He goes, I just, that's the way I picked up sticks and played. I said, well, I got to tell you, I did some serious research. I could not find one drummer. And I I went deep research, not one drummer. And I, I mean, if somebody knows, please tell me, because it's frustrating to me, because I searched for days. I could not find one drummer that played matched grip before Ringo. So I told him, I said, not only did you, you know, I loved your playing and, you know, we were you know, so in love with the Beatles, but uh, as a drummer, uh, I, I, you know, and all the drummers then in the, in the sixties, you know, uh, we all started playing matched grip because Ringo played matched grip. It was difficult because, you know, we were taught and we grew up playing, you know, traditional. We all learned all our lessons. That's how we learned how to play, because all the drum, every drummer learned like that. And I remember my father saying, he doesn't hold the sticks right. I said, <laughs> yes, he does. Don't worry. And they only play three chords. 
I said, but they're the right three chords. (laughs) Anyway, you know, everybody, you know, we all fought with our parents about the Beatles. But I asked Ringo about it. And he he was like, he was kind of put aside about it. He said, oh, I didn't know that. I said, yeah. I said, I'm trying to find out where did you learn that? And he goes, it's the way I just sat down and played. I said, well, I got to tell you, after we all the world saw you play drums like that, uh, I'd say three quarters, maybe more, 80, 90 percent of drummers today play matched grip. And it's because of you. Traditional grip. And I don't mean to get so drumming here, but tr- traditional grip is more for jazz guys. A lot of jazz guys. Are, but there are a lot of guys like Steve Ferroni with Tom Petty. He plays traditional and he's powerful. The thing is, match grip, you have a little bit more power. Uh, another thing that amazed me about Ringo's drumming was that he's a lefty. He's a left-hander, and he, but he played a right-hand drum kit, which that's crazy, you know. And uh, But that's the way, when he sat down to play the drums, that's the, what he did. He played the sticks like this. He played right-handed, even though he was left-handed. And, and you know, who can argue with Ringo? You know? <laughs> immediately because we all wanted to be Ringo of course and so so I immediately tried to play like that which I really sucked because (laughs) I was not used to that it's a really a big change right now when I go back to traditional I can play traditional still but it feels a little awkward now and so it's it's flipped you know so but I've been playing uh, match grip for since 1964 since I saw Ringo how cool is it to so be? The conversation. We're done. All right. I'll see you guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but how cool is that's it, to, it be able right? to, to, be, to be able to walk up to Ringo and talk to him about it? I mean, that's, a, that's an exalted position you have, which is fabulous. Well, I, I had to because it had it been, it, been on my mind for years. I was just wondering why uh, I could not find before Ringo. I could never find anybody, any drummer that played like that. And again, please... Send me a message or something if on Facebook or something. If you anybody ever knows of a drummer that played mask, I did some serious research. He might be out there, but I couldn't find him. So, yeah. and Joe, next month you're playing with Pete Best, aren't you? Next month, yes, I'm pl- with Pete Best. Yeah, that's going to be kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, uh, uh, it, uh, getting him to come into rock camp. Uh, um, when I heard about that and, and we, everybody knows that now, but when, when they first let us know the 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 counselors, they said, keep it hush hush because it was kind of, because it was a surprise, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's going to be kind of really cool to meet him. And, and I mean, I don't know what to say to them, you know? Have I said to Joe, I reckon Ringo will probably turn up at the last minute and replace him. <laughs> or or Jimmy Nickel, who was the drummer for one show yeah. here in Australia during yeah, the nineteen sixty four tour. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, where, where. So where did that that love of the Beatles and and then you're obviously you were drumming at that stage. So when did when did the first the first kind of did it come out of Kent State University? Your first bands and and uh, no no I was I was playing with my father's band. My brother and I played with my father and. We were in a polka band, and that was kind of, um, uh, it sucked. <laughs> so it was not what I wanted to do, but, you know, it was a family band. Anyway, my dad got booked to play at this, like, county fair. Right before we played, 
on this little stage, there was a band called the Echoes. And the Echoes were a rock and roll band. Well, their drummer had been sick. So I had my drums set up and they came over to me and they went, hey, um, we're the Echoes. We, our drummer's sick. Would you mind sitting in with us and play? We play like, you know, Wipeout and, and all these, you know, they were standard songs for the time. I said, oh, I would love to do that. Because right? I listened to rock and roll all the time, even though I was playing polkas with my father. Uh, I, I had the time of my life. It was, I'll never forget that day. So I sat in and played these for about a half hour with these guys played a bunch of rock and roll songs they said wow that sounded great and then they left and i went home and you know two months three months go by and i get a call from them they said listen um our our drummer john he's off to college we we need a drummer you want to play in our band i i was on cloud nine of course you know but the worst thing is I had to quit my dad's band to mm-hmm. do that. So <laughs> that it was like high noon at my house. You know, it was like it, it didn't go over well. But anyway, so uh, I, I w- would drive out to this little town and, and we'd rehearse and we rehearsed for about two, three weeks. And um, I learned all their songs and everything. Then we had our first uh, uh, gig and um, it was uh, it changed my life. It was I was in a rock and roll band and it was like 1964, I think. Uh-huh. And 64, late 64. And um, so that was the echoes that turned into the childs. We have ended up getting a record deal with Warner Brothers. And 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 <clears throat> that was uh, a good four or five year run. And then um, they kind of, you know, they, they wanted to do something else in life, I guess. So the band kind of broke up. And then that's when I moved to Kent and uh, met Joe Walsh and, and was up there for a few years. And um and playing locally up there. And that's when I met Joe and the James gang were playing and, and, you know, and what, uh, what was Kent state university like at that time? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's the Crosby stills, Nash and young song tells the story of it. And we've all read what happened there, but what was it? What was it like as a, well, before the tragedy, May 4th, 70, uh, before that Kent was an amazing place. That's why I moved there. I moved there because couple of my friends were musicians and they moved there and they said, Joe, you got to come up here. Um, there's tons of gigs. There's tons of great musicians and bands and everything. And, and, you know, and I needed to get to work. So I moved up there and um, I was immediately in a band and I was playing three, four nights a week. And it was great. And it was a lovely little, t- it was a little, little college town. There was live music in about 10 clubs every night of the week. So there was a lot of work there. And of course, uh, after May 4th, after the, the tragedy, uh, the whole town changed. It was never the same. It, it, it's, I don't know that it's ever been the same since then. And we, we tried to salvage what the memory of how wonderful it was. And, but there was this paranoia and this ugliness that, that cloud over the city after that, and which was understandable. People, the townspeople were not happy with the college kids because, you know, they blamed the college kids for all that. It, it just got ugly. And I know, Mark, you, you, me and you were there. Uh, yeah. You went there and um, it was um, such a cool little town and it just kind of collapsed after that. It, it wasn't ever the same. And, and now it's, it's all it's back and it's all kind of modern now and everything. But uh, there was something about it. it was a little hippie town. You know, that's all. It was just uh-huh. a small little college hippie town and, and people sitting around loving music. And, you know, it, you walk down the street in 1969, you know, 
We heard, you know, the Beatles, Cream, The Doors, uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Led Zeppelin, and then, of course, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know. And that was before the song Ohio, obviously, because it was before May 4th, 70. So um, it was just this quaint little town, college town, full of life and, and music and stuff. So it was a good place to live. And, and that's why... That's why my first road gig was Ted Nugent. And that's why I got that gig, because Ted Nugent heard about this little town, Kent, Ohio. And he said, I'm going to go down there and scout out. He wanted to put a new band together. And he said, I'm going to go down there and scout out these players. There's some musicians down there that are just they're doing a lot of work and a lot of great stuff. And that's how he pulled me out of that town to go on the road with him. I went with Joe and, and Joe's wife, Susie, a few years ago, and Joe took me through all of the these little places that he's talking about in Kent. Yeah. And even as an Australian being there and, you know, not not um, it not being close to home like it is for the Americans, but it was it was pretty awe-inspiring because you, you walk to the spot where at Kent State University where, you know, the shootings happened yeah. and where, you know, the, the students fell. And there's a hill which is exactly the same as all the famous photos of the National Guard coming up the hill that day. And that hill is still there. The buildings are still there. And then you walk around the town, like Joe was saying, and there's all these what you can just, you can almost feel a vibe of these little special clubs, tiny little clubs, yeah. where some of the most, famous bands that you've ever heard of used to play and there's one in particular that's pretty close to to joe's heart and also so many rock and roll legends uh, a place called jb's yeah joe bujack owned it jb's yeah and and joe often tells a funny story about the night that led zeppelin ended up playing there and i think didn't walsh get up with them as well or something joe or was it yeah, just it wasn't the whole band it was it was page and plant and they came down because the james gang had opened the show in cleveland for the for led zeppelin and you know joe and jimmy page were good friends and uh so they invited him down come on down we'll go jam at this club in kent and you know who who cares when you're in your 20s you do anything so <laughs> doesn't matter what time it is come on down we're gonna go jam right and so uh after they jammed joe bujack he was he was a Polish and he spoke with broken English, you know, and um, he, he didn't know who Led Zeppelin was, you know. And so, but the word got around after jamming there and that the place was, got swamped with, it was 10,000 people. They heard, wow, Led Zeppelin. And so Joe Bujak sold more damn beer than he's ever sold in his life. So he goes up to Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, and he goes, hey, what do you guys do? Are you open Thursdays? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and I remember like it was yesterday, and Page turns to Plant, and he goes, yeah, we're open Thursdays, right? <laughs> and so it was sick. Uh, it was, we all got a big laugh. Joe Bujag never under, he never got the joke, you know, and, yeah. uh, but, um, uh, anyway, they got up and they jammed, uh, they did some blues, you know, and, and, uh, it was really cool, but, um, those were great days, you know, the, and, and it, the town is kind of like you said, Mark, it, there's a, there's a, it's a ghost of what it used to be. It just kind of, it was just funky and fun, you know? Kent State was obviously a, a special place for you in terms of that's is that where you uh, you're a classmate with Walsh there and and that's where you met your wife as well. 
uh, I was not a classmate with Walsh there. Uh, I went to college before that, and I, I actually left. I quit college and moved out of the house the same day. <laughs> so it was, the, was that the day you quit the again. polka band? Or was that? <laughs> yeah, no. It was the same kind of deal, though. It was like, you're what? And you're what? Anyway, no. I didn't go to class there. I lived there. Uh, okay. Walsh went to – he went to school. He hardly ever went to class there. But, yes, I did meet uh, – my my wife, my future wife, and as a matter of fact, I met her the first night I got to Kent. It was, you know, months later that we, we got together. But, um, yeah, I met Susie, and, and uh, this year, uh, uh, we were married in 73, so this year is 50. our 50th anniversary. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. That's an enormous effort. It is. It is. <laughs> but, uh, I was, yeah, I was, speaking, I was speaking for her, not for you, Jack. No, of course. It's <laughs> not me. I didn't do anything. Yeah, if you met Susie, you'd say that's true, Kev. <laughs> you'd love you'd love her. Yeah. So when did you and Walsh hook up? Well, I I was friends with Joe. I, I, I heard about this killer guitar player, and before I moved to Kent, they uh, the James Gang played at this amusement park building, uh, this uh, ballroom at the amusement park, and I heard about the James Gang, and I heard about this guy, this so-called Joe Walsh guy. So I, I said, well, I got to go hear this guitar player. And he was. He was amazing. And he must have been 18 or something when I met him. And I met him that night. And and I just you know it was just a real casual and then and then a year later is when I moved to Kent and I ran into him and I, I he never remembered I said hey do you remember me I met you no I don't know I don't know who you are and so <laughs> he still um, says that anyway but yeah but but we became good friends because uh, like I was saying there there was we talked about JBs the James Gang played at JBs I was in a group it was a, it was a, a group made up of. Uh, white and black people. Uh, it was this funky R&B great band, white and black people. So the band's name was Marble Cake. Uh, they were a co- good band, funky band. But see, we played at the Cove, and that was the dance place. So Joe and the James Gang played at JB's. I we played it there too. Uh, but, um, so Joe would come over and take a listen to what we were doing on their break. And we'd go over and listen to them on our break. The buildings were right next to each other. We knew each other for two, three years. We we'd hang out and we'd see each other once in a while. And, you know, the James gang got pretty big real quick. So they were trapped. They were gone a lot, you know, but when he'd get back to Kent, we'd, we'd get together once in a while. And we always wanted to do some, but I wasn't that wasn't about to interfere with that. The James Gang were doing quite well, and besides, it's Jimmy Fox's band, and you know, and I love Jimmy Fox, you know, and so we were all friends. On the the the, the Ted Nugent tour, I I got to do uh, one of the gigs we did down in West Palm Beach, Florida. We opened Ted Nugent opened for the James Gang. So it was so cool because I hadn't seen Joe in, a, in a, at least six months to a year. I, I hadn't seen him in a while. We played the show and the James gang were great. And after the show, J- Joe came up to me and said, uh, hey, uh, come on, come by my hotel and uh, let's hang out. I said, absolutely. So we, I went by there where he was staying and, and we, we sat up and talked and all that. And he goes, listen, he says, I want to. I want to do something different, um, something a little different than the James guy. I want to try something different, and I want to form something new. You want to, you want to come and play drums with me? And I went, oh hell yeah, <laughs> you know, because I wasn't, you know, interrupting anything of the James. It was his idea to do something. I said absolutely. So he said, well, come to Colorado in January, and we'll put together something. 
And I said, fabulous. I said, just give me a call. So I gave Ted Nugent a notice, my notice, you know, that I was leaving. And he was very cool about it. He was actually very cool. He said, oh, that's so great. You and Joe Walsh would be a great band. You got to go have fun with him. And so he was very cool. So I go home and you, know, you, you got to understand <laughs> me and my girlfriend, Susie, which my wife, my girlfriend at the time, we, I was struggling, you know, doing these club dates and it's horrible, you know, making up 10 bucks a night and finally get this national tour with Ted Nugent, right? And she's, and, and I come home and I went, Hey, I quit Ted Nugent. <laughs> she goes, You what? Are you what? I said, Yeah, yeah. I ran into Joe Walsh and we're, we're going to do something in January. You idiot. You left Ted Nugent. You're going to be back in the bars again. I said, No, no, no. Joe's going to call me. He never called oh. and it's October and then there's November and, you know, we have Thanksgiving in November. One very thanks, <laughs> a whole lot of Thanksgiving in my house. And then, then we had Christmas and it was even worse. And it's like, he didn't call. And I'm like, Oh God, I blew it. And, um, so finally around, I think it was right after new year's, he calls me. Hi, man. Hey, you want to you want to come out in Colorado? I go. When did, why didn't you call? <laughs> so he goes. Oh, I just you know. See, you know, back in those days, there was no cell phones or you know. We it was hard. I could I could never get his phone number. He was unlisted and he was in Colorado. It wasn't like today. You know, you, there was no internet or nothing, and so it was impossible for my for me to get a hold of him. So he finally called. I got on the plane. Actually, my wife, God bless her, she paid. I was broke, and she paid for my flight out to Colorado. Oh wow! And uh, so I went out there, and and that was the beginning of that. And uh, and we we still work together. So that that's uh, a long time. <laughs> so when did you and he write Rocky Mountain Way? We wrote it, in, that was the second album we did. Yeah. So after the first album, the first album I think was brilliant. Barnstorm was a brilliant album. It didn't have any of those, you know, singles on yeah. it, you know. But we uh, uh, started uh, putting together the second album, the Smoker album. Uh, I, on the road, I had been playing this riff, this this riff all the time. I just fooling around with stuff. That's just the way I write. And, um, and uh, it was just a basic riff. Bam, 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 right, and 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 I kept playing that, and and it was obviously a slow blues in E. So Joe would come around and jam to it and all that, and then you know we forgot about it and all that. And at the tail end of making the Smoker album, we needed by by because of the contract, we we needed one more song because you know those contracts back then they said you have to have ten songs or less. That was the contract, so we needed one more song. And and Joe kept saying, "Hey, let's let's revisit that little blues thing we kept doing on the road. It was cool." So we kind of sat around and kind of put it together. It, 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 there wasn't a whole lot to it. The the whole magic of that song is the the groove and and the and the, you know the playing and the slide and the talk box, the synth, all, all of the ingredients of that song uh, and, and made it a, a big song. And uh, it's still played tons today. And it wasn't a throwaway. It's just that we needed one more song. And um, Bill Simpson, uh, producer, he loved the idea. Of, he said, oh, yeah, because Joe had been Joe played some slide on the some James Gang stuff. There was a very little slide, but 
I, I always mention this uh, in honor of Dwayne Allman. When Dwayne died, Joe loved Dwayne Allman. That was his favorite slide player and um, one of his favorite slide players. And when he died, Joe kept saying, all right, I'm going to take up the range here. I got to play slide in honor of Dwayne. And he started playing it. And, he, you know, he's a great guitar player. So it didn't take him long to be really good at playing slide. So the coolest thing about Rocky Mountain Way was that it was uh, the first time we were able to really show off Joe's slide ability. You know, he was because that song is all about that, you know, playing slide. And so it just all worked out. And a lot of people don't know this, uh, but the the record that you hear uh, every time they play Rocky Mountain Way, when we recorded it, that was take one. There was no other takes. That was take one. It was the first take. It was so easy to find that groove, and and we just jammed it out. The, uh, the original song was we played it a little longer than what Bill edited to. You know, it was edited down, but that was take one. We went out there and played, and we walked in a control room, and Bill said, "This this kicks ass, man. This is great," and we were done. And then, you know, we did that in Florida and then we brought it out to Colorado for, you know, Joe did, you know, slide and vocals and and I did talk box. And then I did the synth stuff in the middle and um, we were done with the record. Then that was the last one. And that thing hit the charts and, and put us back on the road big time. That's we you went on from, piano too, isn't it, Joe? Yeah, I played piano on it and uh, we cut the track three piece, me, Joe and Kenny Passarelli on bass. We cut it three piece and then I overdubbed the grand piano and then that was it. That was in Miami. Then we brought it to Colorado and in Colorado, that's where Joe played slide and I did the synth and he did the talk box and he sang it and all that. The whole thing from, from the start was magical. It was just really a lot of magic on that tune. And, and it, to this day, it, it, it holds, it holds its own and it, it, it's played everywhere every day. So uh, we're happy about that. Were you? Did Did you know that you had a song that would would open doors for all of you? Because that's exactly what no. you did. No, not at all. We thought it was really a cool blues, a slow blues kind of song. You know, we thought it was cool. There's something about it sonically that people fell in love with. Uh, when it's you know, it's just that you know people want to do air guitar to it, <laughs> whatever. It's just something about that song it was appealing, mass appeal, to, appealing to everybody that heard it. And we didn't know. We thought actually. We thought maybe Meadows or one of those songs was maybe going to be the single. You know, we never expected uh, that one to be. But right out of the gate, they, the record label, whoever called us and said, we got we got one. We're getting some lot of airplay on Rocky Mountain. We're going, what, on the blues tune? <laughs> and so we didn't know, you know, because you can never, you can't even second guess that stuff. Some stuff that sounds like a hit, it's not a hit and maybe some stuff that on the you know vice versa something that you think's just a cool tune and all that all of a sudden it becomes a hit and so there's no way to tell you know well it's the first radio rock song that actually featured the talk box it is it is and and joe is probably the best in the world with it i know there was a lot of people who tried it and did it and all that but Honestly, I've heard a lot. There's not too many records that use talk books. Some, you know, yeah, there's well, a few. Frampton seems to get the Frampton, most. Peter yeah. Frampton. You know, but, so uh, show me the way and do you feel the way I do and, and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and I watched him do that every night because I played on that tour. So, uh, but there's something about the way Joe did it, uh, which it's it's probably the best, the yeah. best I've ever heard. You know, and um, and I don't know how that even came to be. In other words, how he thought that the middle section of that song needed a talk box is brilliant. You know, and and then before he did the talk box. I, I did the uh, the little synth thing in the middle there. And um, I just figured he was just going to jam out, grab a grab a Les Paul and just, you know, but he went for the talk box and we're like, we, it blew our minds. It sounded so cool, you know. And as a live song, it is such a, is such a, a show-stopping live moment. I saw him do it with the Eagles when the Eagles toured here in 70, whatever it was, in the mid-70s. And it was just everyone went, holy Jesus, listen to this. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the magic of that song is that I don't care who you are, what band you play, anybody who plays that song live, it sound, it's, a, it's easy to sound great live because it's such a perfectly put together song. It's, there's nothing complicated about it. It's, any band could play it, you know. We've had a couple of covers on it. It's one of those songs that uh, it's easy to sound good on, not because it's such a simple song, but it's, it is kind of a simple song, you know, and, it, and and anybody who's ever played it, it always we go to clubs once in a while and, and somebody will play that song and, and it sounds good. You know, no matter who plays it, it sounds good.
there it is. Uh, Joe Walsh at his finest. And more from Joe Vitale uh, coming up uh, in future episodes. Uh, we've got some ripping people. Glenn A. Baker. We still haven't unleashed Glenn A. Baker. That's coming oh. in the next episode. Yes, good. That's a good one. And does he have some stories to tell? Goodness. He does. We should get him back on because you can just really scratch the surface with him. He knows so much about so many things. We will scratch that surface in the next episode of, uh, of Life of Brian. You can oh, look, forward, right. look forward to that one and we'll play the second bit of uh, Joe Vitale where we do talk about Joe Walsh and his drinking days and some uh, some interesting little stories he has to tell, so you'll enjoy that. Uh, oh, right. So, Brian, uh, take care, look after yourself, and uh, we will catch you uh, on the next Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is. Well, thanks, Kev, and um, I'm looking forward to the next one. Uh, This has been a beauty, and um, I'm sure the next one will be even better.